trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join us today. And Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest once again. Eric, great to catch up with you. How are you? Oh, likewise, Brian. I'm, I'm sitting here wallowing in my hesitancy. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think hesitant is, is probably the nicest term I've heard used to describe those of us who uh, thus far have abstained from, from being needled. It's a very pernicious term, isn't it? There are a number of implications to it, um, among them that we're just not very smart, that we need more information, we need to be schooled and educated uh, so that we'll understand how important it is to allow ourselves to be injected, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're. Whereas, in fact, the people who are choosing not to be injected have done their due diligence and decided that, look, this thing. I'm alarmed by this. This, you know, this thing has potentially serious, even fatal consequences for me, and I see no good reason to risk those consequences given that the sickness this thing is supposedly supposed to protect us from presents almost no risk of any meaningful consequences to me. If you're not in one of those categories, uh, the very elderly, the very obese, and so on and so on, as we've discussed before, you have a 99.8-something percent chance of not dying, and that's if you get the Rona. So why would you, why would you do that? It's, like putting, it's put, like putting a flea collar on a fish. Oh, absolutely. Now, of course, this doesn't stop those who are well-intentioned. I'm, I'm being generous here. Those who are well-intentioned in government who, nonetheless, this, this is their major issue. I mean, just last week, the yep. president was talking about we may go door-to-door to help find those people who yeah. need to be vaccinated and give them the information uh-huh. they need. I'm curious what well, that's going to look like. Yeah, it, it looks pretty alarming because implicit in that is a threat, right? You're, you're sending government agents to people's doors and implicit in that is we know where you live. We know that you're, air quotes now, hesitant about taking this vaccine. And it's a form of pressure that's applied to people. And, uh, you know, it, the next form of pressure may be more than just government agents showing up at your door with clipboards trying to in- interfere in your business. It's incredibly obnoxious. And by the way, uh, if this vaccine works, why, why the kerfuffle? If people who want to be inoculated, and if the vaccine is going to protect them, they can do it. They've done it already. So what's the problem? Leave the rest of us hesitant people alone. Yeah, it does make you wonder, and I don't know if you've heard, Eric, What what's the justification given other than, um, you know, I know people are saying, well, you know, we all have to do our part. We need to get this many people, but... Um, yeah, it's to me, this, this feels like a push for compliance. We need to prove that we can get everybody to comply. Well, it's a push for compliance, and the argument that's trotted out is uh, that you might get sick, and if you get sick, you might be hospitalized, and that might impose costs on society. It's the same Mm. tired, tedious, but very effective argument that has been used to tyrannize this country for many generations now. It's the same argument that some of the gun grabber types use. Uh, You know, it doesn't matter that you or I have never shot anybody, never misused our firearm, uh, and have given no one any reason to suspect that we might do so, the fact that, quote-unquote, someone might 
means you and I must be debarred from having firearms or compelled to carry some incredibly exorbitantly expensive insurance policy just in case we end up going on a rampage. That's the kind of argument that they're putting forward with this quaxine business. Wow. Well, and there's another aspect to it, I think. And it's, you know, it's not so much sinister in the George Soroian sense rather than just simply pecuniary in that they want money. What they're trying to do is establish this precedent under which these pharmaceutical cartels can force us all to accept being injected with their meds. And if they can force us to be injected with meds once, they can do it twice. It's not going to be just this shot. It's going to be endless shots over and over. And everything that has to do with your health is going to become, quote unquote, public business. And you'll be obliged to submit and obey an endless litany of decrees and orders coming from the government that can be justified on the basis of public health. I don't remember which administration official it was, but uh, one of the one of the folks up there uh, with President Biden in in pushing for well, we we need to send these people out. We need to know who's vaccinated, who isn't. Yeah. And they were asked, well, is that the business of the government? And and the answer was, we absolutely have the right to know yeah. who is and who isn't vaccinated. Right. The, what was his name? H.S. Uh, Barcera. I'm not sure. I'm pronouncing that sounds it correctly, right. But yep. Yeah, that was the argument that he made. It doesn't matter that, hey, look, I'm perfectly healthy. I'm not, I'm not sick. I'm not imposing a cent of cost on anybody. And this idea that I might, is, is, it's just to open up the door to limitless tyranny, because if, if you might do something, you might do anything, and anything can be imposed on you on the basis of might, right? True, yeah. So I guess we need to be careful before we, we slide a little further down that slippery slope. What, to, what have you heard in terms of recommendations? And again, I, I've not seen anybody come around, you know, to uh, share the good news of vaccinations with my family. <laughs> right. But what, to, what kind of responses um, are, are you hearing that, that may be more productive than, than just, you know, slam the door? Well, I think, first of all, it's really important not to give them any ammunition. It's very tempting to uh, take out the garden hose, if not the baseball bat, when some officious busybody shows up at your door uh, to try to uh, uh, wheedle and cajole and pressure you into becoming a lab rat for the uh, experimental purposes of the pharmaceutical cartels. But that's a bad visual. Don't do that. Um, I think there are probably two good things to do here. The first is simply to not answer the door. You're not obliged to answer the door to anybody unless they've got a warrant. And if they persist, you can call your local sheriff or police department and trespass them off your property. That's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do, if you're game for it, and I am certainly, uh, is, is just to turn it around on them and open the door and ask one obnoxious, evasive question after the next of them and answer none of their questions. Be Faucian. Be a slippery little weasel and just keep and, and just treat them like you would, you know, when, when, when some annoying religious proselytizer shows up at your door, uh, do it, treat them in the same manner. There's a sign that I saw posted on uh, LewRockwell.com earlier today, and he says, print and, and use this. And it says, door knockers, no solicitation. This property charges $50 per minute to listen to any vaccine slash medical advice. Payment required in advance. By knocking or ringing our doorbell, you agree to the terms stated above. <laughs> yeah, or you can, you can go full operatic kabuki on them and play their own game and insist before you open the door that they put on two or three face diapers because you're terrified that you're going to get the Rona. And if they're willing to do that, then you open the door and start scratching yourself, for example, and coughing <laughs> and doing anything else that you can to make them as uncomfortable as possible until finally they get the hint and go away. 
Now, th- there's also the problem, though, of, you know, uh, look, people who would go out and go door to door to share the good news of the vaccination. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. I want to reach the people, though, who who are likely to have their doors knocked on. I want I want yep. my fellow citizens to understand this is not normal and it's not good. And, and you shouldn't welcome it with open arms. No, I don't think people are welcome it with open arms. This whole this whole discussion is completely disingenuous. I think that by now. The people who want freely to accept this uh, inoculation, the holy anointing, have done so. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. That's their right. We live in a supposedly free country, and you should be able to do whatever you like according to your best judgment with regard to things like that. The rest of us have chosen not to. We're not hesitant. We've chosen not to, and we have good reason for choosing not to. And it's imperative that we assert our right to choose with regard to our bodily integrity. This is a form of rape. What is rape? It is the violation of your body, is it not? And that's what we're talking about here. They're, they're talking about enshrining the legal doctrine that the government and these pharmaceutical cartels can essentially rape you, can violate your body whenever they like by simply screeching public health. You know, I saw a video a couple of days ago of a couple of police officers and a couple of individuals in, you know, the medical antivirus suits um, mm-hmm. tackling and inoculating a screaming person on a rooftop in Venezuela. Now, that's, yeah. I mean, okay, it's Venezuela. Yeah. What do you expect from them? But um, shades of things to come. I mean, if, if, if that's, where, that's where this kind of thinking leads if we allow it to take root. Well, what worries me more is that this sort of thing is also going on in, in nominally Western countries like uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. These are countries that are very similar to the United States in terms of cultural history and so on. And we're seeing that kind of stuff happen. And that's where this is headed, if it is allowed to progress and metastasize, if it is allowed uh, to establish itself, this idea that the people who have not been inoculated constitute some sort of threat to others. You know, we went through this before in a milder form with the face-effacers, this idea that was presented to the public that uh, those who don't walk around with one of those silly rags on their face are a mortal threat to other people, and they were, you know, people were terrified of the sight of someone's face. Now it's it's being amped up to to this idea that if you haven't been needled, that you're out there to kill everybody because you're, you know, you're leeching some kind of a virus. But wait a minute, of course you took the vaccine, so you don't have to worry about it. But never mind, don't ask that question. I miss the old days. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> we got to take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest, and we'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. We get together about once a week and we talk about what's going on in the world and Eric uh, for better or for worse, I always feel a little bit better after I've talked with you because I realize, all right, there's at least another guy out here who's keeping his sanity and is not going to give in to the madness. But you wrote recently on how we are being conditioned to live in a sick society. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, the article uh, hung on this announcement earlier this week that um, New South Wales and Australia is uh, reimposing all of the most draconian of lockdowns and sickness kabuki because a 90-year-old woman died. A 90-year-old woman died. Now, 
this is being pathologized. This idea that somebody who's 90 years old or even 75 years old dying constitutes some kind of aberrant, abnormal thing that must be avoided at all costs. Now, in no way am I suggesting that anyone's death is to be celebrated, but it is normal for older people to die. And the fact of the matter is that the majority, I mean the overwhelming majority of the people who have died from this bug are elderly people, older people, and have and, and actually have, uh, have died at an age that is at or higher than the average life expectancy of people in the countries in which these people died. It's, it's a normal thing, and now we're sort of in this weird state where death itself or sickness is considered pathological, and we can't accept it. We can't accept any sickness. Sickness must be avoided at all costs, no matter what it does to our lives, no matter whether it makes our lives no longer worth living. Oof. Yeah, that's. I think that's an accurate depiction of, of what's on the, on the line here. Um, what are some of the ways that uh, that people are being reached? I mean, what are some of the the tools that are being used to to convince us? Hey, you know, this this is a sick society, and you've got to do your part. Well, they're trying to again uh, make everybody terrified of being sick. And the irony here, I did a follow up piece about this, is that the people who are most terrified of getting sick are generally the people who do the least to protect their own health by, by being healthy, by eating properly, by exercising, by maintaining a reasonable body weight. You do those things, and generally speaking, you don't get sick. And if you do get sick, the sickness is usually mild, and, and you, know, you get over it pretty quickly. If, on the other hand, you are an obese, hypertensive diabetic, and you catch a bug, yeah, probably you're going to get really sick if you catch a bug. But nobody wants to talk about the fact that people are eating terrible food, guzzling uh, diabetes, in, <laughs> liquid diabetes in the form of high fructose uh, sweetened sodas all day long, and uh, doing absolutely nothing other than sitting on the, on the sofa eating potato chips and watching football games. That's why the society is sick. And the way to get healthy again is not to constantly shoot yourself up with pills and needles. No, I agree. And it it really hit home when you talked about uh, what we consume in terms of food and drinks isn't doing us a lot of favors. And, you know, I, our goal here isn't to scold people and to you know, get out there no. and sweat and, and work out. But but be aware of what you're doing to yourself in the name of, you know, convenience. Right. And exactly convenience. It's a little more difficult, isn't it, to be careful about what you eat rather than just to grab something, a microwave burrito and throw it in the thing and you know, it pops out 90 seconds, and, and there you go, there's food. Uh, to be a little diligent about your shopping and to make the effort to go outside, go for a walk, or go to the gym, or do something to keep yourself in, in shape. But, you know, it's worth it. All things in life that are worth anything take effort. Anything that just drops in your lap generally isn't. What was it Franklin said about that which we obtain uh, too cheap, we esteem too little? And I think those were very wise words. Agreed. Now, you also had a, a fun column on how uh, mockery might be the best medicine for, for drug pushers. Talk to us about that. Well, yeah, that's exactly what they are, aren't they? You know, we hear talk all the time about drug pushers, but in my life, I've never had somebody come up to me and say, hey, man, take this drug. Take it. Here you go. Take it. Come on. You need it. You've got to have this drug. The only people who do that are people who work for the government. The, the government wants right. to force you to take drugs. The government is coming after your kids at home, in the schools, to make them take drugs. Not the drug pusher on the street corner, who generally he just stands there. And if you want what he's got to sell, you know, go over and buy it. 
but he'll only bother you if you don't pay him for the drugs that you freely take. Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of uh, of medicine and government and the the mind meld that has taken place between the two. I don't mm-hmm. know if they can be separated, but I think that's that's a pretty worthwhile pursuit. Yeah, well, this this the country has been uh, has been turned into kind of a uh, a medical medical industrial cartel of some kind. I'm trying to reach for the right words here, in which people think that they have to constantly go to the doctor and they have to take pills. So many people are taking so many different kinds of pills all the time, and they're not asking, well, maybe is there something I can do to not have to take these pills? It's the quick fix. Got high blood pressure? Well, don't drop the 30 pounds extra that you managed to put on over the past 15 years. Don't stop eating lots of salty food. Uh, just take a pill. You know, and then, and then you're going to need another pill, but don't worry about that. There's another pill for that, and so on and so on. And before you know it, uh, you've got a whole medicine cabinet full of pills, and you're paying 1500 bucks a month for the pills. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I grew up with a dad who was a pharmacist, and, and I worked in his pharmacy, you know, as a, as a teenager. And it's, it's astonishing, not only how expensive, you know, a, a prescription habit can be, and, and people get on, you know, multiple drugs. They, they, they rattle when they walk. And, mm-hmm. and they're spending an awful lot of money, and, and then you have to take this drug to counter the effect yeah. of this one. And th- There are healthier ways to live, definitely. Yeah, I think I have some insight because of my own personal history. My dad was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. I grew up around doctors. And I remember at a young age observing uh, my dad, for example, loved to eat hot dogs every day and soda. And, of course, he had high blood pressure. I don't eat hot dogs and soda. I don't have high blood pressure. You know, I just realized a lot of these guys, you know, these are medical guys, but they take terrible care of themselves. They eat terrible food. Uh, they smoke a lot of them. They drink a lot of them. Um, they don't exercise. They're overweight. And here they are pushing pills on people. It, it's, you know, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? Agreed. I think the, the cure, okay, this is Dr. Brian weighing in here. Um, the cure, though, starts with people taking ownership of their own lives, ownership of their own worldview. And that means they've got yes. to be willing to think beyond whatever pre-digested sound bites are being spoon-fed mm-hmm. to them by the dominant media sources. Yes, and I'd like to expand on that. That concept of ownership is vital and critical. You own you, I own me, and we have an absolute moral right to assert that ownership by deciding what we wish to do with our own bodies and what other people do with their bodies, as long as what they do does not harm other people, is entirely their right to choose as well. And nobody has the right to impose their own particular point of view on somebody else as far as how they should live their lives and how they should uh, take care of their bodies. It is an outrageous idea, and that is something that must be fought against if we're going to recover any of our liberty in this country. Yep, I think I think the people see the the lines forming. People realize there's there's conflict coming, but I, I think very few people understand how important it is to to get your your own worldview squared away first uh, before you start trying to correct everybody around you. And by the way, isn't it very interesting that the most hysterical people on the side of forcing Americans to submit to being injected? are also the same people who are equally fervid and, and even violent when it comes to the issue of abortion. They'll say, uh, it's my body, it's my choice. Well, what about my body and my choice when it comes to being injected with this substance? Now, that's a good point. 
That's a good point. Eric, we're, we're down to about our last minute or mm-hmm. so here. Let's, uh, let's take a moment, talk about your website. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I encourage my, my listeners to go to ericpetersautos.com. What are they going to find there? Uh, they're going to find an eclectic mix of things. They're going to find topics such as you and I talk about with regard to political issues and philosophical issues. They'll find new car reviews. Uh, they'll find articles uh, about car maintenance, motorcycles, antique cars, practically anything. I've even been doing some articles about self-sufficiency lately, including uh, my, my nascent plans to erect a greenhouse so that I can have some, some vegetables to eat when I'm denied being able to go into a store to buy them because I haven't received the holy jab. Okay. Actually, I did see that article. I haven't read it yet, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I'm off to go read it. Eric Peters, thank you so much for your time. You bet, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, if you find value in the different stories that I share with you, the the focus on nonpartisan information, maybe tell a friend about it. It's pretty easy to do. You can also subscribe to the podcast at thebrianheidshow.com. Listen at your leisure. I am so glad to uh, to have people like John Stossel out there speaking truth on a very, very large level. I think uh, he is one of the clear voices out there. I've, I've said this before, and I, I still maintain, there are very few people out there today who qualify to be called journalists, at least in the true sense of the word, meaning they're reporting facts without judgment, without emotional manipulation without you know some agenda attached to what they're reporting other than to give you enough information that you can you know make some sense of it yourself and i think this is really essential i mean i think this is this is important stuff but there are very few people who can do it ben swan is another one uh, glenn greenwald probably my favorite worldwide that guy he he cuts a pretty wide swath and uh, and probably one of the better truth tellers out there. There's an article I came across from John Stossel that uh, I thought was very timely. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in this uh, second half of this hour talking a little bit about capitalism, talking about big business, because it's really fashionable, you know, to be against big business. You'll see kids, you know, running around with their smash capitalism shirts and whatnot. So I'm not here to tell you, yeah, they're all crazy or they're all evil. They're just maybe less informed than they realize they are. And one of the great benefits that's enjoyed by many big businesses is a kind of pseudo partnership with government. In fact, I think it was Paul Rosenberg who pointed out, you look at the really big successful companies and almost guaranteed you're going to find at some point in some way, they have had to lie down in bed with government Now, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad. I guess that depends on whether you're a shareholder or not. But bottom line is, you know, if you really want to go somewhere, you got to be able to uh, partner with government. But big business is also very happy to use big government to limit their competition. Here's how John Stossel describes it. He says, politicians say they pass laws to protect Americans from big business. 
And people like hearing that. Many don't like big business. But unfortunately, most people don't realize that those laws often help big business while hurting consumers. He talks with American Enterprise Institute fellow Tim Carney in his latest video. And Tim Carney tells John Stossel, big business and big government are not enemies like a lot of people think they are. When government gets bigger, whether it's through taxes or spending or regulation, the big guys, the big businesses, benefit. Consider the $15 minimum wage. Now, people think of that as pro-worker. But big companies like Walmart, Costco, and Amazon lobby in favor of it. Why would they do that? Well, John Stossel says it's because big business can afford robots. Their competitors often can't. Carney says capitalism is a cutthroat thing, but this isn't capitalism. When you turn to government to regulate your competitors out of business, that's where we need to say this is wrong. You know, I think of all the kids running around wearing the, uh, you know, smash capitalism T-shirts. And I think, okay, it's very fashionable, but I don't think the word that they're using to describe capitalism is what I don't think it's defining what they think it's defining. We'll talk more about that coming up. John Stossel, in responding to Mr. Carney, Tim Carney, says, well, maybe you're too cynical. Maybe Amazon founder Jeff Bezos really does just want people to be paid more. And Carney's response was, well, if Bezos wants people to be paid more, he can pay people more. But what he's trying to do is outlaw competing business practices. And he's not alone. John Stossel says, when the big toy maker Mattel was caught selling toys that contained lead, its lobbyists got Congress to force all toy makers to do expensive lead testing. Well, that just sounds like they want to protect children, he told Carney. Well, if you're trying to make a thousand Barbie dolls, if you're going to test a thousand Barbie dolls, he says, that might be fairly efficient. But if you're a grandpa making little wooden handmade toys, you're going to have to hire some third party tester. That could cost you $1,000. You're not going to sell your wooden toy for $1,000. So it effectively outlawed handmade toys. After small toy makers screamed about that, Congress exempted toy makers that make fewer than 7,500 toys per year. So those toy makers just have to stay small. Carney says maybe what Mattel did is say, this is our opportunity through regulation to kill some of our competitors. And Stossel points out Facebook tries to do that, too. At an international conference, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg said, we don't want private companies making so many decisions about how to balance social equities without a more democratic process. In other words, government, please regulate all of us. That sounds noble. But Tim Carney points out the catch. He says he's calling for a mandate that platforms impose some sort of artificial intelligence to weed out misinformation or hate speech. Now, Facebook obviously can afford that, but Zuckerberg's smaller competitors like Odyssey, Rumble, Parler would struggle to pay the thousands of content moderators and the expensive artificial intelligence that Congress may require. That means new social media sites may never even start. And that last sentence, John Stossel says, is a key point we often miss. Carney says regulation doesn't just kill existing businesses, it keeps new businesses from ever entering. And would it surprise you to learn that big business has always pushed for regulation? More than a hundred years ago, Henry Hines, founder of Hines Ketchup, started using refrigerated rail cars because 
Carney said he could get fresher tomatoes, and therefore he could make a ketchup that didn't rely on sodium benzoate as an artificial preservative. Everyone loved their Heinz ketchup, Carney continues, and it rose up to be about half the market. But sometimes people who are half the market want to be all the market. So Heinz himself himself rather, started lobbying to outlaw sodium benzoate. Now, sodium benzoate is a preservative that Heinz's competitors used. Heinz claimed it wasn't safe, but it is safe. It's still used in Sprite, Jell-O, Kool-Aid gels, and other foods. Henry Heinz almost got those products banned, says Carney. He almost got Teddy Roosevelt on board, which would have outlawed all of his competition. Sometimes businessmen hate nothing more than competition. Not sometimes, says John Stossel. Usually, almost all businesses hate competition. But he points out competition is what helps us consumers most. And when big government colludes with big business to kill competition, we all pay the price. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, logically, that uh, that follows, right? I know capitalism gets a, gets a pretty bad rap. But uh, even if we take that off the table and just say, look, we're talking about competition and the need for competition. Competition is what uh, requires those who want to compete in the marketplace to come up with the better way to address people's needs. And if you can't do it, if somebody else does it better than you, that's where people are going to take their business. So I think in a very real sense, competition is the way to get the best quality goods to the greatest number of people for the best price. And that's a system where free market economics absolutely shines. By the way, I have a, I have a thing here from Daniel J. Mitchell. Is capitalism worth defending? And there are a ton of links in this article. If you really want to take a deep dive into capitalism and see what it's about, this is your article. He says, I like capitalism, both because it's moral and it delivers superior results compared to any alternative. And he has links to a two-part series on defending capitalism, a five-part series on the case for capitalism. But he says, perhaps most important, it's it's a system that delivers great results if the goal is lifting people out of poverty. But he asks the question, is it possible that capitalism is a tarnished word? And that may be the case according to new polling data from the United Kingdom. Edward Manick recently wrote about Frank Lutz's research, which is finding knee-jerk hostility to the capitalism word. Dr. Frank Lutz is testing public opinion in Britain to find an alternative to capitalism after 170 years of use because he fears it's becoming a bad word. Well, capitalism itself is already a bad word in the U.S. and is fast becoming so in the U.K. too. He says, adding, it's one of the key things I'm trying to figure out. Does this country need an alternative to the word capitalism? He says, I think it does. We're about to find out. Questions on capitalism and voters' approach to it form part of a giant survey Dr. Luntz has put together as part of a study for the Center for Policy Studies think tank, at which he has based himself for the summer. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. And look, I, you know, maybe you don't talk about capitalism over the dinner table. But if you want to understand what's going on around us economically and why free market economics is the better way, well, keep listening. We've got some more to share with you coming up.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Thank you for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. You can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com where you will find a link to this article by Daniel J. Mitchell. Is capitalism worth defending? I think when you make the, the distinction here and say, look, what most people refer to as capitalism isn't really capitalism. It's, it's crony capitalism. It's where big business, you know, partners with government at some level and thereby enjoys advantages that up and coming businesses don't or that exi- existing businesses can't, at least those who aren't willing to partner with government. Daniel Mitchell says Nick King of the Center for Policy Studies suggests maybe we should use something other than capitalism when describing an agenda of limited government. He says language matters. Capitalism is unpopular. But to many of capitalism's advocates, terms like free enterprise and open markets can be used interchangeably with it. And other polling suggests these concepts are more favorably received. If a phrase is more appealing than capitalism to those who reject it as a concept, then it makes sense for those who believe in the benefits of the system to adopt the language which people more readily accept. Now, Daniel J. Mitchell says, look, I'm perfectly happy to talk about free enterprise rather than capitalism. In fact, he has a link here uh, where he wrote about making that verbal shift clear back in 2016, although he says, I obviously still frequently use capitalism when talking about economic liberty. But he says, maybe I need to be more disciplined, especially if I want my message to be heard by young people. Christian Niemitz of London's Institute of Economic Affairs has a very depressing assessment of what millennials are thinking. Surveys show there's a lot of truth in the cliche of the woke socialist millennial. Younger people really do, quite consistently, express hostility to capitalism and positive views of socialist alternatives of some sort. For example, around 40% of millennials claim to have a favorable opinion of socialism, and a similar proportion agree with the statement that communism could have worked if it had been better executed. 67% of younger people say they would like to live in a socialist economic system. Young people associate socialism predominantly with positive terms such as workers, public, equal, and fair. But very few associate it with failure and virtually nobody associates it with Venezuela, the erstwhile showcase of 21st century socialism. Capitalism, meanwhile, is predominantly associated with terms like exploitative, unfair, the rich, and corporations. So when presented with an anti-capitalist statement, the vast majority of young people agree with it. However, when presented with a diametrically opposed pro-capitalist statement, we often find net approval for that statement too. This suggests that when young people embrace a socialist argument, this is not often a deeply held conviction. Now, Daniel J. Mitchell says none of this is a surprise. I've written a couple of times about the foolish views of young people. Heck, he says, I was writing about this problem clear back in 2013. And he says, I'm tempted to conclude that young people are simply stupid and we shouldn't allow them to vote. But I realize that is not a constructive sentiment. So perhaps instead, we should send them to live for a year in Greece, Argentina, or Italy. And if that doesn't sober them up, they can spend a second year in Venezuela, North Korea, or Cuba. I know, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's actually pretty good. <laughs> I think he's right on the money. 
I have one other thing I wanted to share with you. I actually saw this. Uh, I got to give a hat tip to uh, Sarah Weaver, one of the Young Voices contributors that uh, that I work with. Um, it was it was a conversation on Twitter. And of course, Twitter limits you to what is it? However many characters and you can only post this many characters. So it had to be broken up into a number of different tweets. But it was one of the best. It was one of the best recountings of why people would have doubts about the 2020 general election. Because let's face it, one of the most disturbing narratives that we're being pushed to believe is one that says, well, anyone who questions that last general election is a racist, anti-government extremist who wants to overthrow the government. Or there's the supposition that they're just, you know, this mindless Trump follower marching in lockstep. Well, Tom Woods shared this uh, in, in an email and it's it's the the tweets. It's the series of this this tweet thread that uh, that really lays out why people don't trust what politicians are telling us. Tom Wood says it's incredible how dumb political discussion in America is. Take a position on something, you'll instantly be told, well, you must be a supporter of, you know, insert name of politician. But he says, if we're going to pretend that what happened in American life in terms of the media, the deep state, the universities... For starters, between 2016 and 2020 was normal and unremarkable. Tom Woods says we've lost our minds. On a Twitter account called Marty or Martyr Made, there was a tweet barrage a few days ago, and he says, I think it's worth reading. And Glenn Greenwald, even though he's on the left, is far more serious than most people in the official libertarian world. He describes the tweet thread this way. This is an absolutely brilliant exposition on the underlying mindset, grievances, and motivations of Trump and MAGA supporters. Now, it's not as cathartic as screaming racist and fascist, but much more illuminating. Don't agree with every particular, etc., etc., but hope everybody reads this. So this is what the person said, and I have a link to this in the show notes. The person said, I think I've had discussions with enough boomer-tier Trump supporters who believe the 2020 election was fraudulent to extract a general theory about their perspective. It's also the perspective of most of the people at the Capitol on January 6th, and probably even Trump himself. Most believe some or all of the theories involving midnight ballots, voting machines, etc. But but what you find when you talk to them is that while they'll defend those positions with info they got from Hannity or Breitbart or whatever, they're not particularly attached to them. So here are the facts, the actual confirmed facts, that shape their perspective. Number one, the FBI, etc., spied on the 2016 Trump campaign using evidence manufactured by the Clinton campaign. We now know that all involved knew it was fake from day one. See Brennan's July 2016 memo, etc. These are Tea Party people, the types who give their kids a pocket constitution for their birthday and have founding father memes in their in their bios. The intel community is spying on a presidential campaign using fake evidence, including forged documents. That's a big deal to them. Everyone involved lied about their involvement as long as they could. We only learned the DNC paid for the manufactured evidence because of a court order. Comey denied on TV knowing the DNC paid for it when we had emails from a year earlier proving that he knew. This was true with everyone from CIA Director Brennan and Adam Schiff who were on TV saying they'd seen clear evidence of collusion with Russia while admitting under oath behind closed doors that they hadn't. All the way down the line. In the end, we learned that it was all fake. 
At first, many Trump people were worried there must be some collusion because every media and intel agency wouldn't make it up out of nothing. When it was clear that they had made it up, people expected a reckoning and shed many illusions about their government when it didn't happen. We know as a fact the Steele dossier was the sole evidence used to justify spying on the Trump campaign. The FBI knew the Steele dossier was a DNC op, and Steele's source told the FBI the info was unserious, and they didn't inform the court of any of this and kept spying. Trump supporters know the collusion case front and back. They went from worrying the collusion must be real to suspecting it must be fake to realizing it was a scam and then watched as every institution, agencies, the press, Congress, academia, gaslit them for another year. Worse, collusion was used to scare people away from working in the administration. They knew their entire lives would be investigated. Many quit because they were being bankrupted by legal fees. The DOJ, press and government destroyed lives and actively subverted an elected administration. This is where people whose political identity was largely defined by a naive belief in what they learned in civics class began to see the outline of a regime that crossed all institutional boundaries because it had stepped out of the shadows to unite against an interloper. Now, GOP propaganda still has many of them thinking in terms of partisan binaries, but a lot of Trump supporters see the regime is not partisan. They all know that the same institutions would have taken opposite sides if it was a Tulsi Gabbard versus Jeb Bush election. It's hard to describe to people on the left who are used to thinking of government as a conspiracy, Watergate, COINTELPRO, weapons of mass destruction, how shocking and disillusioning this was for people who also encouraged their sons to enlist in the army and hate people who don't stand for the anthem. They could have managed the shock if it only involved the government, but the behavior of the corporate press is what really radicalized them. They hate journalists more than they hate any politician or government official because they feel most betrayed by them. The idea that the press is driven by ratings and sensationalism became untenable. If that was true, they'd be all over the Epstein story. The corporate press is the propaganda arm of the regime. They see that now in outline. And nothing anyone says will ever make them unsee that, period. There's more to this. But you'll have to go to the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I think you'll find this worth your while. You don't have to agree with it, but it will definitely give you a broader perspective from which to understand why people don't trust the election results or the people telling them, hey, you should trust this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.